0: You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions, or even the answers, are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney.
1: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney. And hey, dear listeners out there, whether you're listening over the airwaves or whether you're checking us out via podcast, I just want to tell you guys, thanks for tuning again. Thanks for being a part of what we do here at Snarky Faith Radio. This show today is gonna be an interesting one. And I know I may say that quite often, but we've got a guest interview with Carl Giverson, who is a professor at Stonehill College and renowned or maligned, depending upon who you ask, for his work of integrating evolution into the journey of faith. Now, I'm not talking about evolution like, hey, we, we develop, we change on our journey, our, our faith, spiritual journey. No, no, no. Literally, evolution. Uh, He's a brilliant mind. And I think you're going to really enjoy the talk that I have with him. So today we'll be having part one of that talk. Carl is also known for his satire that he writes for the Huffington Post. He started a series recently called Jesus at Trump Tower. And so For the interview part today, we'll be talking about really that relationship between being a critical thinking Christian. That'll be part one. And so next week, you'll get the rest of that interview along with the dramatic interpretation of Jesus at Trump Tower. That's right. We've done it here. Carl said it was cool. We got some voice actors together and we put together... Jesus at Trump Tower for you, my dear listeners. So stay tuned because that is coming out next week. But before we get to that, it's time for what's good, what's bad. So first off, with what's good, what's bad, holy sweet Lord, thank you for giving us John Oliver. And also, thank you, John Oliver, for coming off of hiatus because I don't think I was going to be able to last another minute In our crazy, topsy-turvy McDonald-Trump world that we are living in right now, John Oliver came back last week, and it was beautiful. And his show, which you can go and find on our website, www.snarkyfaith.com, you can look for the What's Good, What's Bad, which will have all the videos that I'm talking about here in this segment there for you, waiting and ready to go. But John Oliver in last week tonight did something beautiful and absolutely amazing because we all know that Trump likes to be briefed on issues of national intelligence basically by watching cable news. And so in order to get sanity into his big fat orange head, what John Oliver did this week was to purchase ad time during cable news in the morning. And what he did was, during these commercial spots that they purchased, they actually integrated real facts into seemingly real commercials. Just so you know, our president can get the idea and get his little bit of news. Hopefully, that's not as crazy as the cable news that he continues to watch and digest on a regular basis. Speaking about Trump, Uh, Again, this will be on the website, too. Every week feels so insane. I think we're, what, like three or four weeks into the presidency now, and it is wearing all of us out. But guess what? We should have seen this coming. We should have seen this coming a while ago. I actually found clips of Trump when he appeared on WrestleMania. And when you watch this, when you watch the insanity of well, first of all, like let's say this: professional wrestling is a stupid, insane soap opera that really fools nobody. And if it actually, if actually people do think it's real, that's even more scary. Um, well, I'm assuming those are probably the people that voted for him. But yes, he makes an appearance. This is like I think it's like ten years ago on WrestleMania. And as you begin to watch through that episode where he is on it, you begin to see, oh, he's essentially treating the presidency like WrestleMania. And the only problem is, WrestleMania, most of us know it's fake. The presidency, he's treating it like it's fake in some sort of an insane wrestling match. But somehow the rest of us are stuck with this reality that continues to unfold. I don't know about you, but I am just having a hard time making it through opening the news every morning to be able to read it. I don't want to check my phone ever when I get news alerts or anything like that because it kind of begins to cause indigestion, even just when I hear that sound of new news coming out. Because generally... And the world we live in today, no news is good news. All right, but enough of that for now. Enough of Trump's America. Did anybody catch, did anybody catch Denzel Washington's acceptance speech at the NAACP Image Awards for Outstanding Actor in a Motion Picture? His speech is Every bit inspirational. It's one of those things that we need now. Because the problem that we have is that we can easily become cynical. We can easily become bitter in Trump's America. We can easily want to check out. But that's absolutely the wrong way to handle it. And it's easy for me to say that. I mean, hey, I've got a show called Snarky Faith. Uh, I love being sarcastic. And yes, if you've been listening to the show for any period of time, you realize that, yes, I am cynical. But I also love to be inspired. I also love to be reminded that Trump's America does not have to be our America. That there is a vision that he has that is moving out into the world right now that is terrifying and scary. But what we need to do is we need to move back to creating our own narratives, our own narratives for the things that we believe in, the things that we love, the things that we are most passionate about. I think we need to go back to dreaming and we need to go back to working hard. And Denzel's speech I mean, I think the dude could read the phone book and it would come off so eloquent. But what he said in the end of it, and, and the whole, you can watch the whole thing on our website, but he just said, keep striving, never give up. Fall down seven times and get up eight. Ease is gr- a greater threat to progress than hardship. So keep moving, keep growing, keep learning. And I think we need that. So instead of us becoming more and more cynical and bitter, I think we need to become more and more hopeful and inspire those around us that there is another way, that there is a different narrative that we can capture and that we can make happen in the world that we want to create. Because I look at this, I look at my kids when they watch the news, I look at all of this, And I see them becoming cynical. And I don't disagree with it. But I don't want them to end there. I want them to keep moving and to keep dreaming. And speaking of dreaming, another way for the world to be. The NPR had this great story about Pat Brown, who is attempting, well, I guess not attempting, because he's actually done this. He has pulled off a veggie burger that tastes like actual, real meat. That's right. He has actually made a veggie burger that tastes like a real burger. So why does this matter? Well, on one level, I would say that it matters simply because for at least me and my family, we would be what you call garbage vegetarians, which means that for the most part, we're vegetarian uh, If you're going over to people's houses Or other people are serving stuff We make Amendments to our, <laughs> to our Beliefs uh, within that And my wife Has been on a pursuit of trying to make good bean burgers And while they are delicious They do not taste like a real Burger And no, the story is not important Because finally, Stuart has Something else to try to eat No, that's not what it is Because if you begin to think about what it takes to make a quarter pounder hamburger, and so they've, and it's great, they have this whole chart about about really how awful raising livestock uh, for us to be able to eat meat at any whim that we want to. Like McDonald's is what, 24 hours now? Which I guess you could call that meat. No, but when you think about how it harms the environment, And so they break this down. So for you to be able to eat a quarter pounder hamburger, so that what that looks like is, that is 6.7 pounds of grains and feed for the animal. Uh, That also takes up 52.8 gallons of drinking water to irrigate the crops. And that also requires uh, 74.5 square feet of grazing and growing for feed crops. So you need to have area for the crops to be able to feed the animals. You also need areas for the animals to sit around and graze, right? And so in all of that, uh, per quarter pounder hamburger, that requires 1,036 BTUs for feed production and transport, which is the equivalent of running your microwave for 18 minutes. And so this matters, not simply based upon Stuart wanting a better tasting veggie burger. No, this matters because if they can do this, if they can do this, this can fundamentally change the way that we handle the food industry and on top of it, how much of an impact or a footprint we continue to put on the environment day after day, year after year. So these burgers are all natural. When you see the quote-unquote meat before it's cooked, it looks just like ground chuck. It cooks like ground chuck. It smells like it, and it tastes like it. Can you imagine, can you imagine how much that would transform not only the way we eat, but also the way that we handle the environment? I mean, it is, it, there's a, it's a fascinating story. It is a fascinating story about one guy's pursuit to change the world through hamburgers and it's from NPR so you can check that out on the website too and lastly i will leave you in the realm of pure escapism this is absolute pure disgusting escapism there's this guy his name is john ferrero who's also known based upon his talents by the nickname hammerhead that's right hammerhead pounded his way into the record books of the Guinness World Records Italian show. You know what he did? You can kind of guess this a little bit based upon his name. He pounded 38 nails into a board in under two minutes with his forehead. Yes, you heard that right. 38 nails into a board with only his forehead. Now, how could anybody do this would probably be your first question. My first question is, why would anybody want to do this? But really, how can anybody do this? Well, Hammerhead apparently has a skull that is twice as thick as the average human beings. Supposedly, his forehead is 16 millimeters thick compared to the average person, which would have 6.5 millimeters. The videos on the website, it's something to behold. And it's not one of those things that I would say it's not for the faint of heart. But it is kind of bizarre, and it kind of makes you cringe while you watch it. So I'm not quite sure if that fits into what's good or what's bad. It kind of just is. And it really begins to kind of be a visual for how I feel about the way the world is going today. You ever have that feeling when you want to just kind of bang your head against the wall? Well, apparently, this guy literally does. Uh, And I would just do it metaphorically because otherwise it would hurt and it really wouldn't solve anything. So, that is what's good, what's bad from this week. And next up, we have the interview with Carl Guyberson that I'll give to you right now. Here it is. So, we're speaking here today with Carl Guyberson. And Carl holds a PhD in physics from Rice University. Uh, He's also lectured on science and religion at the Vatican, Oxford University, London's Thomas More Institute, and many prestigious American venues, including MIT, Brigham Young, Xavier University. He's also published more than 200 reviews and essays in the New York Times, CNN.com, The Guardian, USA Today, LA Times, Salon, and he also blogs at the Huffington Post. So Carl, thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be here. So one thing when I was doing a little bit of background research into you... I noticed that in 2013, you were elected to the International Society of Science and Religion. And is there any kind of secret handshakes or signet rings that came along with that?
2: No, unfortunately, I think if you uh, put uh, religion and science together, you don't get anything quite so interesting or mysterious as that. So basically, you just uh, put name tags on your chest and go over to the buffet and uh, start eating. That's about it.
1: That's pretty much what anybody in a secret society would say who doesn't want you to know about the signet rings and the ha- secret handshakes, right? Uh, yes, that's
2: exactly right. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, well, I'd stumbled across your work initially just if with your Huffington Post article, Jesus at Trump Tower, and we'll dive into that a little more. But as I started to look into your background, it was it became more and more interesting about how much you've written and you've talked about this whole weird tension, this divide between science and religion. And so I wanted to start this off kind of with a softball question for you. So why do you think Christianity is so afraid of evolution?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I, I, there's so many different ways to kind of approach that. I think, I think one of the significant factors is that very, very successful kind of evangelical entrepreneurs have managed to kind of craft an argument that Christianity kind of needs to do that. Uh, And I say that because that, that movement didn't come out of any sort of mainstream religious tradition. I mean, it wasn't that Catholicism or the Baptist Church or Presbyterian Church or the Anglicans kind of looked at this really, really closely and said, you know, we really think that this idea is incompatible with with uh, traditional Christianity. Uh, and it wasn't even an immediate response to Darwin uh, in the early part of the 20th century when the fundamentalist movement was getting started. Like, it it was not anti-evolutionary at that point, and many of the prominent early fundamentalists were fine with, uh, with Darwin. Uh, but about the middle of the century, uh, there were some just very energetic, articulate people who uh began to make a an argument that uh you could take the first chapters of Genesis and you could take a particular interpretation of natural history and the fossil record and and fit those two things together and that this was the only place the only place that a Christian could truly stand uh and uh be faithful to uh to both God's word and uh and the evidence of nature and uh and that argument just turned out to be uh very very uh, successful. The, the audience was right there for it.
1: And so I take it from how you're kind of framing this too, that you're a big fan of Ken Ham.
2: Oh yes. Yeah. Ken and I <laughs> are uh, really good buddies. And I think if you go to his website and you can read a lot of interesting blogs where he just praises my work, uh, yeah, to the heavens.
1: Cause I'm assuming that you have like a lifetime pass to the arc, uh, exhibits
2: or whatever the, fun ride he has going on. He's always asking me to come out and kind of (laughs) my perspective on uh, on on his projects. Well, and so
1: and so I love how you're like laying this out. And and like another just like follow following up that question is that why is this still a thing? Like, why is this argument still a thing
2: within the church, do you think? Well, I mean, that that in, in a certain sense was the kind of thread that defines a lot of my career is kind of wrestling continually with that. I mean, at first at first when I began to engage this question, I thought perhaps the reason was just that people didn't know enough science and that if we could just kind of explain the fossil record and genes and so on, that they would come around. But I quickly discovered that it's not about that at all. Uh, and uh, And eventually after you know, writing several books about it and talking to a lot of people and and having a vast army of fundamentalists calling for my head, uh, you know, I, I began to kind of look at this as, as a more sort of cultural phenomenon, and and I, I I think the reason why this is a thing is that is that American evangelicalism has kind of separated from kind of the mainstream intellectual culture, and in that separation, they've created their own colleges and universities their own presses they have their own authority figures they have their own uh television uh celebrities uh and so on and so there's a whole kind of separate world that a lot of evangelicals live in and, and this this is a world where where they hear from people that seem very sophisticated that there's a controversy over whether evolution is true or not i mean they just they just think that's true the same way anybody else might say there's a controversy about whether there's aliens elsewhere in the universe or something like that you know they think it's a live question because the people that they listen to are telling them that and uh and and so so they they live on a kind of intellectual island kind of cut off from the steady advance of science Hmm.
1: and so if you had your way like so if carl had his way how would you free reframe this conversation about evolution
2: i mean i I'd, I'd like to reframe the conversation uh at the level of kind of sunday school teaching because i think that's where a lot of the sort of structural problem kind of persists that if if you look at the typical education of a of a child growing up in the evangelical church they learn uh, Bible stories. Uh, they learn them in Sunday school. They learn them if there's a kind of children's part of the service. Uh, they learn them from books that, uh, uncles and aunts give them for Christmas and so on. So they, so they get all of this biblical literacy, the stories of Adam and Eve and, uh, Moses and the 10 commandments and uh, Noah's Ark and so on. Uh, and they just learn all these stories. Uh, and then those stories kind of, are just taken literally by young minds, as would be natural. Uh, but then when they get to be sort of 13 or 14 and kind of need to revisit those stories in a more sophisticated way, uh, maybe talk about where those stories came from and, and why we know they uh, actually can't be taken literally anymore, uh, we don't do that. We just We don't bring the story back around. Uh, there when if you look at what uh the programming for teenagers is like in churches it's all about trying to keep kids from having sex getting on drugs uh hanging out on the streets you know giving them a separate place to kind of uh be uh, apart from uh you know the world and all of its problems and and so on uh and there's just no attempt to kind of help them grow up intellectually and so so you regularly encounter people who are college students i mean they're 19 years old they're in college and and no one has ever suggested that to them that adam and eve might not necessarily be historical figures and i've been particularly surprised at the number of people who come to college with that view even though they're a part of a denomination that doesn't actually hold that view mm. they they just you know the the stories that they learn when they're 4 years old just kind of take up residence in their head and just kind of stay there and then all of a sudden in college they have faith crises, because they're hearing for the first time that there can't possibly have been two individuals in the Middle East 10,000 years ago from whom the entire human race descended. That's just like not possible. And so a lot of their faith kind of gets shattered when they realize that.
1: And so on that same tangent, when you're talking about the, I guess, Sunday school uh, during the formidable years with people, how how do you feel like Christians holding on to this this historic idea of Adam, um, how has that fo- uh, forced Christianity to reject science and facts and critical thinking and all that kind of stuff
2: yeah so it, so it turns out that uh, and this was something i didn't I didn't appreciate as much at first, but it, it, it turns out that the, the only real issue for most people is Adam and thoughtful students who I've engaged in class for you know decades now, uh, who are eager, they're very, very eager to accept science and, and to kind of get out of this anti-science mold that they've been raised in without losing their faith. Uh they're 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 okay with the earth being very old, they're okay with with a, a creation that's understood as a long process over time, they're okay with the fact that God has a plan and so on. All that seems uh acceptable to them. But they kind of recognize that when it comes to Adam and Eve and the fall and sin and so on, that there's something kind of theologically important there that they're not sure how to navigate mm-hmm. and so i think I think the issue for uh for most Christians who are wrestling with this is is not really so much uh evolution per se it's how do we account for sin in the world unless we have two individuals who brought it. Uh, into the world, uh, if we don't have that story in history somewhere, then we have to suppose that God made all of this bad stuff that makes life so tough, uh, and that's just not acceptable for most people in terms of their understanding of creation
1: and so with again if if you had your way if you had your way to do this, um what do you think kind of the posture? of a thinking Christian, you know, what, what kind of posture should a thinking Christian have
2: with a thinking Christian? Uh, and this was a large part of my own kind of formation as, as I kind of left fundamentalism and kind of eventually evangelicalism uh, was coming to the realization that, that science is an enterprise of great integrity I mean, what's going on with in the scientific community is, is not a, Uh, A a political effort to achieve consensus around a set of secular anti-religious ideas. There's no kind of general anti-religious sentiment in the scientific community. It's a very honest search for truth. And in an age where telling lies about everything has become so commonplace, I mean, science really should be understood as one of the few enterprises where actually telling the truth and being honest about what you are encountering in the world—that's uh, one of the few communities where that value is still at a very, very high level. More so than in uh, in the church uh, today. And so, so I really think that that thinking Christians need to recognize that that science. Uh, it is an enterprise with a lot of integrity, and they need to take it seriously. And so, if when scientists come and say, "Look, there's there's no way that the human race can be descended from two individuals, no matter when they lived, because there's too much diversity in the gene pool uh, to to have it all have originated that way," uh, then people need to say, "Okay, that means Adam and Eve are not historical characters." I have to live with that. And if I can't figure out how to fit that into my idea about sin and suffering and the origin of all the evil in the world, then I'll just have to accept that that's a mystery that I don't understand.
1: Well, I love how you begin to talk about science as a search for truth.
2: You know, and I, and I think
1: that many folks in the religious realms would say that religion is about searching for truth or ultimate truth. But where do you think that they go wrong? Because oftentimes, you know, within like, well, specifically Christianity, when we talk about searching for truth, we, a lot of folks within those realms already assume they have the truth, right? You know, as opposed to, um, and maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, but when you look at science, I mean, the pursuit of truth continues. You know, it's not simply we found this truth, let's just leave it and walk away from it, we're good here. Uh, Which is what seems like a lot of times within Christian scholarship has become where we already have the truth. You know, instead of necessarily needing to search deeper for it, we already just have it, and we just need to proclaim what we have. And, you know, again, why do you think it, or why do you think it is that Christians aren't always on that search for truth, much like folks are in the science realm?
2: Well, uh, I mean, that's the the point that you've made is is one that my, you know, good friend John Polkinghorne has made on many occasions and talked about how science and religion really uh, are, are are sort of cousins, uh, and they're related in that they both take the search for truth very seriously. Um, but I don't think that it actually kind of plays out like that in practice. I think in some sort of ideal sense, everybody, uh, all Christians would kind of say that we're all about uh, having the truth and and being open to truth. But But the reality is that the the christian community is more about protecting historical truths rather than seeking new truths so you 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 never you never find within the christian community really in in any of its traditions a kind of excitement when they discover that something that they've long believed to be true actually is not true mm. Whereas in the scientific community, when something like the Big Bang emerges and people are very startled by this idea that there was some sort of extraordinary beginning event to the universe, like there's like this is like big news. It's exciting. It's it's like a a, a novel that's reaching some sort of crescendo, and and people get really excited about it. And, and mm. e- even though these uh, revolutions are often hard fought because People holding on to other views don't give them up quickly. There's a kind of uh, excitement that something really significant is going on. I mean, in, in contrast to that, when, when something emerges that challenges a traditional Christian idea, it's kind of circle the wagons and protect the, uh, the received wisdom from the past at all costs and try and, uh, and, uh, and sort of uh, fight back against this new truth.
1: Like, yeah, it's it's like, like what you're even saying. It's kind of like the toe the company line, um, kind of a posture that you have. And and some of this, I wonder. And and I've, we've wrestled through this on other shows. Some of this, and 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 I would love to hear your feedback on this. I think some of it comes down to how we disseminate and how we raise disciples currently, like in the American church. Because even if you just look at the basic structure of how things happen. It's simply you have one person on a Sunday telling everybody else what to think. Um, you have this idea that you're just translating to them. But very rarely do you see churches nowadays actually teaching people to critically think. You know, to be able to to have the tools to make the conclusions themselves. Um, do you think some of it has to do with just the way that... That we well, I mean, again, if you look at science, I mean science is a study where you're continuously pushing people to research and to dream and to search for what's out there. Whereas within Christianity, oftentimes, at least American Christianity, it seems like it's boiled down to we already have it figured out and we just need you to continue to know what we have figured out.
2: Yeah, I think I mean, yes, I mean I I certainly agree with that. Uh but the issue with science, though, I think is more is more complicated. And I, I don't I don't want to be overly critical of the church on this point because these these scientific issues are I mean they're 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 peripheral. I mean most most of the conversation in the Christian tradition has been about Christ and what that means, how to understand all that, right? Uh and everything else is kind of secondary uh to that. Uh so if you if you look at what a good pastor is trying to do, and I'll, let me let me re- answer this question by uh, re- uh, relaying a conversation that I had with with one of America's leading uh, evangelical pastors, uh, who who kind of put it this way, he said, "In my congregation, he said, I have people who are wrestling with the death of a child. Mm. I have people." who are struggling with their sexual orientation. I have people who have had an abortion and are feeling very guilty about that. I have people who are looking after parents with dementia uh, and so on. And he kind of went down the list of the real-world issues that people fight and kind of look to the church to kind of help them get through these struggles of life. Mm -hmm. And then he said... uh, when do I have time to talk about the age of the earth? Hmm. You know, I mean, that that's a very good sort of summation of, I think, why this is such a serious problem, that if you've got somebody in front of you whose child was killed in an accident and you're trying to help them get through that, you're not going to say, and I'd like to take a little bit of time now to talk about the age of the earth and how it's not thousand <laughs> years old. True, true, yes. You know, so, so those parishioners, End up just thinking, oh, well, like this is a creationist church. We believe the Genesis story and the earth is young and Adam and Eve walked in the Garden of Eden and so on. And they, they those, those just don't end up getting into the sermons. And
1: let's see, some of my background is I went to like Fuller Theological Seminary and I like to commonly say that. Fuller was amazing for me, but it was also terrible for my career because one of the things that I valued about how they handled things was one because they're interdenominationally, and they really just push critical thought, um, which oftentimes critical thought when it comes to the church isn't always very welcome. Um, and in your own story, and this may, this may sound silly, but I want to see how you unpack this. You know, would you say that you're a Christian who happens to be a scientist? or is it the other way around and within all of that i know oftentimes in culture it's an either or um kind of a paradigm that we we thrust things into but but how do you find that balance between faith and and your profession like your in science how do you how do you find that balance
2: well i mean i i found it increasingly harder and i i mean i i went through I went through a transition as an undergraduate where I had to sort of free myself from the fundamentalism with which I was raised. And that was a difficult intellectual transition and, and one that in many ways I never really, I never really kind of got past that emotional struggle. Mm. Um, I had been raised in a, in a very fundamentalist, biblically uh church, but it was a wonderful church. It, was, it wasn't political There was no gay bashing and and so on. So it was a very warm, nurturing environment. And so in in a sense, I was kind of cutting off something that I look back on very fondly Mm -hmm. rather than kind of escaping something that had turned me off. Uh, And then I spent, uh, you know, many years uh, teaching at Eastern Nazarene College, uh, you know, in the Church of the Nazarene, which is not which is not a fundamentalist denomination per se, but. Which, for practical purposes, is, and I began to feel increasingly alienated from that tradition. The more I, uh, the more I became kind of more uh, scientifically uh, informed, and uh, the, the church seemed like it, the church in general in America seemed like it grew increasingly more conservative. Hmm. Uh, it became kind of more hateful on issues of, uh, gender and, uh, gay marriage and, uh, and, and so on. So, the, so I, I, I began to feel sort of alienated from, uh, from the whole evangelical world. Like I can't really identify myself with that label anymore. So, uh, so I had, I had a conversation like this with, you know, Robert Wright, who does this blogging hedge thing for the, you know, for the New York times. And so, so he, he asked me, he's kind of followed my career over the years. So he, he asked me, uh, well, like, what does it mean to you? Like if, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? And, and I said, look, I said, for me, I don't really want it to mean much more than I think it's important to pay attention to the things that Jesus said about caring for the least of these among us. And if somebody says that's important to me, then I'm totally happy to let them have the label Christian and, and so on. So, so for me, it's, I mean, I've really gone a long ways from, from being interested in trying to kind of unpack theological doctrines and so on. Robert Wright actually kind of laughed when I gave that definition. He said, Oh, I'll be happy to pass it on to Sam Harris that he can call himself a Christian now.
1: <laughs> well, when and when you, I mean, do you would you say that you approach religion, faith, theology with the same like rationality that you approach science?
2: No, I, I, I don't. I mean, and that, and that's. I think that's one of the. I think that's one of the things that kind of needs to happen for the church is for for the church to kind of recognize that that these sort of big transcendent questions that are at the heart of the Christian understanding of of reality need to be uh, approach with greater humility. There needs, there needs to be more room for people who kind of can't buy various pieces of the package. I mean, the, I mean, the, like the, the case to be made, for example, for say the virgin birth, right. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it's unbelievably weak, right. It's a very, very weak case. And, you know, and if, and if you're going to kind of say that, oh, well, if you can't kind of sign on to this particular doctrine, then then you're like, you're too liberal, you're heretical, and like, we'd rather you not teach at our institution or not attend our congregation, uh, and so on. Uh, If you're going to kind of insist that these uh, things which are very, very difficult to kind of support adequately uh, be embraced with the same kind of confidence that we might embrace the periodic table of the elements or the Mm -hmm. shape and motion of the earth, uh, then you 're just going to drive a lot of people away because the a lot of those things that are in the Christian worldview are are quite extraordinary things
1: well, and you'd mention this and and I love that you'd mention this um, talking about how we in the Christian world like to label folks as heretics very quickly um, you know it doesn 't take very much for folks to start trying to say hey're you're, you're out of the tribe you're out of here do you see that same kind of posture in the scientific community i mean is it if you believe this, do we run you out as quick as possible?
2: Uh, no. I mean, I I don't see that at all. Now I know that people in the intelligent design movement who have felt marginalized, uh, they would say, "Oh no, no, they run they run us out there." Uh, but because I think that the scientific community, uh. Does its work with great integrity. I think some of the sort of conclusions that that community has come to simply need to be accepted now. And if you want to kind of be in the club, uh, so to speak, like you, you can't keep revisiting questions from the 19th century as if they're still alive, right? So, uh, I mean, Dar- Darwin is is correct. I mean, the world evolved. I mean, that's that's the end of it. And the claims by the Discovery Institute that these are still open questions, that there's still a real controversy, and we want it taught in the public schools. There's still room for advance on these 19th century notions of design, and so on. I mean, that that question was adjudicated in the 19th century. It's it's not a 20th century question. It's certainly not a 21st century one. So, so I mean, there 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 is a certain kind of. Scientific heresy, I guess you might call it. And if if somebody wants to be a member of the scientific community and doesn't believe the Earth is billions of years old, doesn't believe that radioactive dating works, doesn't believe evolution and genetics and so on, if they just reject all that, then you you kind of have to question their right to be a member of that community. And mm. I, I i don't I don't know whether whether that's actually kind of comparable to what goes on in evangelical communities that jettison people so often and so quickly or so little.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and speaking about evolution, you know, can you talk to this a little bit? And it's kind of a nebulous type question. Um, Do you think that, A, evolution should matter to faith? Um, and, um, do you think evolution can actually inform our faith on a deeper level?
2: Well, I think, I think it should, I think it should matter kind of only in the sense that if you are going to engage questions of human origins, then you should do that with the truth and not with a myth from the bronze age. I don't think that every rank-and-file Christian in every pew in the country needs to be reading about Darwin and understanding evolution. I mean, we don't expect baseball fans to all know about Darwin, so why would we expect you know, evangelicals to all know about Darwin? I mean, Darwin's not some all-encompassing idea that everybody needs to kind of be wrestling with all the time, because if you're, you know, if you're an elementary school teacher... Like, when does when does Darwin come into your discussion? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to happen, you know, it's not something you deal with in the first, second, third uh, grade. On the other hand, I think that it's incredibly useful to kind of recognize that evolution has shaped us as humans in very profound ways. And if we don't take those into consideration, then we don't really understand ourselves. Mm. And I think, for instance, if, uh, I mean if you, if you take an issue like uh like homosexuality that you know for most of history was viewed as some kind of a, a strange perverted choice made by people who were sick uh and now we understand that it's not it's a natural way that people are I mean it, it it becomes important to kind of recognize that there there is a human nature and we're born with it and we can't escape it uh, we have issues related to our our, our gender, our, our sexual preferences uh and and everything uh else, and so so if you really want to understand humans and their sort uh, of their condition in the world as sort of actors in this great drama, you you've got to pay attention to what we know from evolution.
1: And so for you, coming at I guess uh your faith, especially from your background, your education, everything else, what feeds you spiritually?
2: Uh, well, probably the, probably the most meaningful experiences that I have are with just the, the wonder of the world. I mean mm-hmm. I wrote, I wrote a book called, uh, the wonder of the universe, uh, for InterVarsity Press. And it's, uh, I mean, it was, it, it was a wonderful experience sort of writing that. I mean, I, I, I think just literally when I look out the window that like what's out there is so extraordinary. And I, I think often about the fact that the DNA that has made me what I am, uh, has also made those trees what they are. I mean, they use Mm -hmm. the same (laughs) DNA, uh, and so on that I have. And so, so this, this idea that we have a long, uh, a, a long history that goes from the big bang all the way through to the big brain, and that that history is kind of what has created us and made us, uh, and so on. It's, it's very, very grand. And I, I really have trouble kind of imagining that that is just a purely materialistic process with no kind of transcendent kind of component to it. And I, I'm, I'm not inclined to say that like, oh, well, God was just managing the whole process and here are all the things that we can see specifically that he did but in some sense and and this was a comment that Freeman Dyson made in his uh autobiography he said in some sense the universe knew we were coming like that that's a really mm. interesting comment that you know you look back 10 billion years ago and you say now in the universe as it exists right now when it's kind of 4 billion years old like you couldn't have life in it and then kind of all these things start to happen Make it possible for there to be life at some later point, and and you just think like like wow, this trajectory is is quite extraordinary, and and for me that is is an amazing uh, amazing part of the uh, of the story of who we are. So I mean that that nurtures me spiritually, that knowledge, and then and then at the at the end of all that, I find it to be uh, spirit very spiritually fulfilling to just note the grandeur of the world as it exists right now. I mean, just the beauty of a sunset and uh, autumn leaves. And, you know, and even today, there's something kind of beautiful here in Boston with this uh, spectacular storm that's whipping snow everywhere. And, you know, by tomorrow morning, there'll be very interesting patterns that the wind has created on the surface of the snow that will have mathematical shapes and so on to them. And, like, to to kind of look at that and and to see that, like, there's this amazing order behind everything that happens, even amidst the noise and the chaos of a storm, uh, is for me spiritually uh, rich.
1: So I want to now pivot a little bit towards your piece at the Huffington Post. Um, but as we're kind of just transitioning towards that piece, where do you think Christianity has gone wrong in America?
2: Well, Christianity is such a broad term that I... I know. Yeah, so... Uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to kind of just say Christianity. So let let me let me comment about the demographic with which I'm most familiar. Uh, I think that the evangelical demographic, that large group, which I think would probably number around 100 million, probably in America. I mean, it's it's the largest, certainly by far, of the various groups. Uh, I think that demographic. Uh, largely because it didn't pay enough attention to the life of the mind, has allowed itself to be kind of duped by clever, charismatic leaders who have uh, sort of transformed its priorities into a political agenda instead of something that you can say is based on what Jesus taught. And the fact that if you find a random evangelical and pluck them sort of out of their habitat and sort of examine them, you know, scientifically, like you'll discover somebody who thinks that it's really important to have a big military, that we should make bigger, more updated bombs, that we should stop spending so much money feeding uh, hungry people, that we should block our borders to refugees fleeing. Uh, certain death in their home countries, uh, and so on. Like you, you find this kind of strange right-wing politics that seems to have replaced uh, Jesus' teachings. That you know, a great personal sacrifice. We need to be prepared to help those around us who are in need. Uh, and so, so I, I mean, I, I think that's what's that that's happened. That that this, this, because this group has been so inatt- inattentive to the life of the mind that they they don't understand that their moral positions are no longer the ones that Jesus uh, held. Their scientific positions are from the 19th and even 18th uh, century. And uh, so many uh, positions they hold are just uh, indefensible now in the modern world, off on this island that I talked about earlier.
1: Well, that's the end of part one with our talk with Carl Geiberson. Thanks to Carl for being willing to sit down with me and do this. And like I'd said earlier in the show, we're also going to give you a treat next week with the dramatic reading of Carl's piece in the Huffington Post, Jesus at Trump Tower. And to give you a little bit of a tease, I'll give you a little bit of Trump right now.
0: I'm interested in eternal life in heaven, okay? now i'm not worried that i won't go to heaven of course in fact if you come to trump tower you will see i practically live there now and my latest wife is an angel if you know what i mean and we know angels don't grow old just like my wife doesn't grow old because i keep replacing her with a younger one okay
1: well that is all i've got this week for you Just a reminder, as we end this broadcast, you can also catch us on podcasts at www.snarkyfaith.com. You can go to our website for all sorts of stuff. We put out writing on a regular basis. We have what's good, what's bad that you heard earlier in the show. And of course, we have our entire catalog of past shows that you can catch there. And just in case you've missed us one week. And I want to just tell you, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of the process. Thank you for being part of my radiotherapy that I think I have to go through on a regular basis just to stay sane in this crazy, topsy-turvy world that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, if you want more, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also go onto iTunes and type in Snarky Faith. You can find shows there. And if you are over on, if you're over on iTunes, feel free to give us a four- or five-star rating. Give us some love. Give us some reviews. We love to hear back from you about all that kind of stuff. And if you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have comments, if you have articles that you want us to talk about on the show or put in what's good, what's bad, you can email us at questions at snarkyfaith.com. And I truly hope you all have a wonderful, hope filled rest of your week. And again, I'll leave you with the words of Denzel Washington. Keep working, keep striving, never give up. Fall down seven times, get up eight. Ease is a greater threat to progress than hardship. So keep moving, keep growing, keep learning. That's all we got this week. And I am out of here. We'll catch you again next week. See ya.
0: WCOM is listener supported community radio and snarky faith is only possible through our sponsors aqueduct conference center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings special events conferences retreats and weddings for more information go to www.aqueductcc.com we are also sponsored by lumen lumen a spiritual community of seekers sojourners Question askers, doubters and skeptics is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com.